Pro Se, Law 360's weekly podcast. I'm your host, Amber McKinney. As always, I'm here with my wonderful co-host, Bill Donahue. Wonderful. And Alex Lawson, also wonderful. Uh, it's great to be here. <laughs> I'm in a it's great mood. to be wonderful. I'm in a pretty good mood today, guys. Yeah. I mean, yeah. So what are we going to dig into this week? Well, uh, b- before we get into the, to the meat of the show, I did want to offer a brief update on some things we talked about. Was it last week or two weeks ago on the Kirkland stuff? Sometime well, in the past. Uh, uh, we talked about how uh, a group of Harvard students were advocating um, or, or, were, or were calling on their fellow students to boycott Kirkland Ellis over their use of forced arbitration agreements yep. um, for their associates and summer associates. Um, and at the time we did the show, that was kind of unresolved. But just this week, uh, Kirkland Ellis actually sort of uh, kowtowed to that demand and uh, dropped their arbitration clause. Uh, specifically citing the pushback from this Harvard group. Additionally, do you think it was our podcast? Uh, I mean, it's definitely. Not. I like to think you know sure. we're, 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 we're we're moving, making real waves in the legal m- industry, moving the gears of power there. Sure, and <laughs> uh, big law. Um, uh, everyone missed. I I did a little yeah, gesture he did here, a cool uh, little dance. The whole thing. That. Uh, also, in addition to Kirkland, uh, Sidley Austin also uh, struck down their, or, or rather, uh, withdrew their provision that requires. Um, you know, so these coerced arbitration agreements, uh, not only for attorneys, which has been the norm for a lot of these law firms who uh-huh. have done that, but also for the non-lawyer staff. They were also, oh, I guess, so just a clean like, sweep of, of the entire office, basically. So that's Sidley and Kirkland, who are now the latest. Um, the group, which is the which is called the Pipeline Parity Project, uh, has next set their sights on DLA Piper. They kind of said, like oh. on Twitter after the wow. Kirkland News, your move, DLA Piper. So um, coming for you. I yeah. really love when we have some updates to share because I. It's almost a sad trope of the show that I'm always like, can't wait to see how that turns out. That's <laughs> true. What's going to happen turns next? Turns out it turned out. So it, that it was did. nice. The other piece of pressing uh, legal industry news, uh, a key hire, you know? Uh, yeah, you know, we, we we track those moves. Jerome Corsi, who is a uh, uh, far right-wing pundit, he has now gotten caught up in the Mueller probe. He's a Roger Stone associate. Yeah. He uh, News came out today that he hired... Um, Larry Clayman, yeah, remember, remember that guy? Uh, yeah, I, I, I remembered the name, and then you gave me the, the you gave me the primer on before we started rolling. In, in case you forgot, uh huh. He's, uh, yeah, he fought a lot of he's fought a lot of very questionable lawsuits. He's a very litigious guy. I think he sued the Clintons a bunch. He sued uh, he sued Obama a bunch. Um, definitely an interesting guy to uh, you know, not from a from a white shoe firm. Yeah, um, you know. It's... Well, what this Mueller thing needed was more interesting characters. The characters have been a little dull, so that's <laughs> that's, that's that's good. Um, so, should we get to the news? Let's move on to another interesting person to talk about. Yeah, um, we're back on the sort of on the Trump uh, judge nominee beat today. Uh, the Senate uh, actually held a held a vote today, uh, Wednesday. Um, that advanced the nomination of a very controversial pick for a federal bench seat in North Carolina. Uh, that man, uh, the, the nominee is Thomas Farr. Uh, he is an attorney who um, is, again, is up for a e- uh, seat on the Eastern District in North Carolina. And he has drawn a lot of blowback from Democratic lawmakers, primarily focused uh, on his vigorous defense of North Carolina's state uh, voter ID laws and their gerrymandering efforts uh, over the past several years. And that's kind of stuff has been all over the news, issues about gerrymandering and and, and gerrymandering stuff. I think we did did a show on that North Carolina ruling. That's right, um, yeah. Struck down, yeah, yeah, yeah. And he's a big player in this. So basically what you have to know, 
uh, far right now, he is uh, primarily an employment lawyer at Ogletree Deacons in Raleigh in North Carolina. Um, but as I say, all of this work comes down to all the all the different kind of litigation he's conducted in the voter rights space. Um, and basically, you know, lawmakers saying he has basically made a career out of disenfranchising primarily black voters. Uh, in 2007, he defended North Carolina's uh, voter ID law that was eventually struck down by the Fourth Circuit as discriminatory and, you know, violating the Constitution. Um, more recently, he did defend the state's uh, partisan gerrymandering effort at the Supreme Court uh, that was sent back um, to the lower court earlier this year. Um, somewhat more explosively, Far uh, before he was in private practice, he was a uh, a lawyer for the senator, uh, the North Carolina Senator Jesse Helms, uh, who, uh, in case you don't remember, has as time has passed. Well, even at the time and as time has passed, as you know, has a has a sort of very fraught history of like extremely racist sort of uh, efforts to stifle voters and all kinds of things, most notoriously. I mean, he sort of made a career out of crusading against the Voting Rights Act, the Civil Rights Act, as like mm -hmm. intrusions upon state sovereignty. Um, in 1992, Helms was sued by the DOJ for sending out flyers to black voters in a state warning them against going to the polls and saying they'd be arrested if they were Jeez. going to vote. So again, this guy Farr is his counsel at the time that this stuff happens. He has distanced himself from the sort of more unsavory part of Helms's legacy, but that obviously didn't uh, go a long way to mollifying his critics. So Democrats were obviously upset about this and things were contentious. But what happened in the vote we had today? We're recording this on a Wednesday. Yeah, yeah. Um, so it uh, it's about as thin as it gets. It was 50-50 uh, on the nomination. And Mike Pence, of course, then had to step in mm. and cast the deciding vote. This is a procedural vote that just basically tees up a vote sometime this week. And it's generally a proxy for how the actual vote will go. The one uh, Republican defector, uh, obviously the, the Dems only have 49, was actually Jeff Flake, although it is not based on uh, opposition to FAR. He's doing um, sort of a, a ceremony. protection for Mueller. For the Mueller so, yeah. investigation. So it's a ceremonial block. That's how, that's how they got to 50. But anyway, this all but secures his path to the bench. Well, let's talk a little bit more about sort of the contentiousness here because yeah. we've repeatedly on the Pro Se podcast talked about um, judicial nominees that have gotten some blowback, but this one seems particularly rough. Yeah. I mean, across the board, I mean, you even, even in the Kavanaugh uh, situation, I mean, you know, there was, you know, Joe Manchin crossed the aisle and things right. like that. I mean, that was not the case here. The knives were fully out for far. Uh, the Congressional Black Caucus put out the most pointed statement. It said, it is no exaggeration to say that had the White House deliberately sought to identify an attorney in North Carolina with a more hostile record on African-American voting rights and workers' rights than Thomas Farr, it could hardly have done so. Uh, so yeah, uh, not they're, they're, words they're, about they're that. pretty clear on that. Chuck Schumer said, I can't believe they put this guy up again because it's not his first uh, go around. And this has, been, this has been going on for a long time, right? This that He was nominated by Bush for he's the been first time? Yeah. He, he's been nominated four times by two different Republican presidents for this exact seat. The, 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 I mean, this is his resume is sort of its own drama, but this this seat has been vacant since the end of 2005. This is the wow. longest vacancy in the federal judiciary. George W. Bush nominated him twice, and now Trump has nominated him twice. Are there not other attorneys well, in that, North Carolina? You know, you know, it's funny. I mean, I would love to they read. Ran like, out. I, I, he, exactly. I, mean, I, I would love to read. I mean, I'm sure some like North Carolina news outlet could write um, an interesting I mean, story about that. Later in the show, we're going to talk a little bit about bar passage rates and yeah. I should have looked up the passage rate in North Carolina. <laughs> yeah, they really they really like him for this one to use like <laughs> cop terminology. Uh, but yeah, they really like him for this. Um, also, in the 
in the in between uh, during the Obama term, Obama nom- nominated two different uh, African American women for this seat, um, and they were blocked by the GOP Senate that didn't let any of his judicial nominations get through. Farr was already a fraught candidate because of this stuff we already talked about, but the idea that these women were then passed over, and now the idea that he could seize it again so many years later, just really ramped up the rhetoric here. But as we say, um, as we record now, he's all but confirmed to the bench, um, and it's causing a great deal of discomfort for his critics um, with the idea that, you know, voting rights in North in North Carolina is far from settled. And, you know, if yeah. that remains, he could be um, overseeing some of these cases for a very long time. For our other story this week, we're jumping back into the, uh, the world of big law. Um, so I feel like many of the worst of the Me Too stories and scenarios have sort of been stories of people, organizations not doing enough or quickly enough or yeah. taking any action or just sort of you it's know. the institutional part that that underpins the actual like specific transgressions. Exactly. Themselves. But so we saw a pretty different story this week over at um, the big law firm of Reed Smith, yeah. um, which quickly fired a partner in London after um, accusations of harassment of a of a lower level attorney. Okay. I hate having to get into the nitty gritty of what happened, but. Give us the overview. What went on? So it was uh, it was reported last week, but the Reed Smith confirmed for us on Monday that the firm had fired a partner who was accused of harassing a female attorney. Um, as I mentioned, the news was reported first on Friday by a British legal blog called Roll on Friday, um, which characterized the victim as a trainee many years his junior. Um, the name of the partner has not been made public. But so uh, we followed up on Monday and the firm gave us this statement. As soon as we became aware of this incident, uh, which took place over a year ago, we took swift and appropriate action. The safety and well-being of all our colleagues matter greatly to us, and we are committed to providing a positive and professional workplace for all our people. Well, I kind of love that we're talking about a Me Too era story that has someone making quick and positive action. Yeah, it's certainly a different posture than some of the other stories. Um, But yeah, I mean, it seems like does this mean like firms are really getting on the bandwagon and understanding how serious these issues can be? Yeah. I mean, since this whole sort of uh, since Me Too, you know, really since Harvey Weinstein's story broke about a year uh, ago, a year and change yeah. ago, um, we've seen some positive steps from firms that firms are taking this kind of stuff more seriously. In February, the firm of uh, Denton's uh, quickly suspended a partner over harassment allegations. There was an internal investigation that said that the conduct hadn't risen to the level of harassment, but that it fell well below firm standards and and the partner was no longer at the firm. Um, in March, Mayor Brown uh, parted ways with a partner just a few days after he had joined the firm, after allegations arose that um, that at his previous firm, Morrison Forster, uh, that there had been inappropriate conduct. Um, also that month, as we reported heavily on the podcast, um, Latham and Watkins uh, forced out, ousted, Saul resigned, whatever yeah. you, however you want to phrase the the verb. But um, Bill Vogie, who was the um, the then chair of the firm and a long time very prestigious litigator, yeah. um, over a pattern of of reckless behavior, you know, sexually explicit text messages and threats and all sorts of other stuff. So yeah. took quick action once it became public via Law Three Hundred and Sixty. <laughs> yeah, but, I mean there. Are, so there are. We've ticked off a number of examples of firms taking quick action faced with serious stuff like this. What's like the broader state of play? I mean, are are they doing enough? What do the critics have to say about it? So, no. I mean, and they're positive 
signs, but it, yeah. uh, you know, um, so a study came out last month that um, one in four women working in the legal industry have experienced some form of sexual harassment or misconduct over the past five years. <sighs> and of those, uh, half of them didn't report the incident. Yeah. Uh, that's a much higher rate of non-reporting than in tech or finance or energy or healthcare fields, other sort of uh, similar white collar fields. I got a lot of guesses about why it's worse for female attorneys, but did the study go into any of what they thought were the reasons? Yeah, it's a a thing we've covered to death on the podcast, but it's that, you know, that women thought it would hurt their careers, that they'd be viewed as difficult or that it would just set them back, that they'd be targeted for retribution either in explicit ways or, you know, more nuanced ways, being left behind. the law is such a collaborative work environment where you're always on teams with people you always have to be picked exactly. for what cases you're assigned to that kind of thing right you don't want to be pegged as the person who's being squeaky wheel yeah and exactly all right. yeah. um but and and so like we were just praising um dentons for taking quick action in another situation but last month the firm reached a settlement to end a lawsuit in new york um all the normal caveats apply that when you settle a case you don't yeah. agree so you don't admit to anything but um brought by a female business development specialist who accused the firm of not taking action when she had been groped and harassed by a by a male boss so you know like i said they, they didn't admit to doing anything wrong but there are there are still lots of these kind of claims coming up and and i think anyone who's following the legal industry would would say there's still a lot to do Hey guys, it's Alex. Just wanted to update uh, an item you heard us talk about a little bit ago about the nomination of Thomas Farr to be a judge in the Eastern District of North Carolina. Sort of throughout that segment, we had mentioned that the Senate advanced his nomination and was all but assured um, to send him to the actual bench. I say all but assured because as I speak to you now, late Thursday night, there has been a development that I just thought uh, we should update you about. Senator Tim Scott, the Republican from South Carolina who voted to advance Farr's nomination uh, late this evening, decided, came out and said he would not actually vote for Farr on the actual nomination. He cited many of the controversial portions of Farr's resume that we discussed in the segment and actually came out with a uh, a rather lengthy statement about it here. I am ready and willing to support strong candidates for our judicial vacancies that do not have lingering concerns about issues that could affect their decision-making process as a federal judge. This week, a Department of Justice memo written under President George H.W. Bush was released that shed new light on Mr. Farr's activities. This, in turn, created more concerns. Weighing these important factors, this afternoon I concluded that I could not support Mr. Farr's nomination. The memo that Scott is referencing there uh, talks about Farr's work for Jesse Helms, which again we referenced in the segment, and he decided that that was compelling evidence uh, enough for him to vote against the nomination. So as we stand here today on Thursday night, it appears with the numbers as they are now that Farr will not be headed to the federal bench in North Carolina. The Supreme Court heard arguments this week in a closely watched case over the practice of civil forfeiture. 
which allows state and local law enforcement to confiscate private property if it was used to commit crimes. The use of civil forfeiture has skyrocketed in the past decade. Local governments say it's simply long-standing practice, but advocates say it targets low-income and minority Americans with excessive punishments that violate the U.S. Constitution. Here to discuss is Diana Jones, who put together a story on the Supreme Court case for this week's Law 360 Access to Justice. Welcome, Diana. Thanks so much for having me. So I want to set the table here with some basics about what this is. I mean, I sort of sped through what civil forfeiture even means. Can you tell us more about it and how it's been used in recent years? Sure. So civil forfeiture, as you, as you mentioned, is a way for law enforcement to take possession of property that they allege was either used in a crime or was paid for with the proceeds of criminal activity. So typically, kind of how it goes down is the property is seized when somebody is arrested or charged with a crime. And then a separate civil proceeding is brought against the property itself. So if you spend any time, like me, looking at federal court records, you'll see a lot of cases that say something like USA versus Ford Taurus or right. USA versus $64,000 or whatever. Those are exactly these civil forfeitures that I'm talking about. And, and as you said, it is something that's grown in popularity um, over the last decade. And that's in part because many jurisdictions allow the law enforcement agency that seizes the property to keep it. So it's definitely a, a moneymaker for agencies that are maybe dealing with, you know, budget shortfalls. And as we've seen the practice of civil asset forfeiture be on the rise here in the last couple of years, so too has, has criticism of it. Can we talk about, you know, why people think are so up in arms about this? So there's been a number of high-profile news stories about civil forfeiture, and it's attracted the attention of a number of different groups. I would kind of put them in two different boxes. There's you know, civil rights groups like the American Civil Liberties Union, and they're criticizing civil forfeiture as, as a way that we're funding our criminal justice system on the backs of the indigent right. who are really making up the majority of those charged with crimes. And one thing they note is that, you know, losing cash that you've been saving or your car or even your home to civil forfeiture can keep them, keep you from getting to work or, you know, finding um, a way to kind of bring yourself out of the criminal behavior that led to your arrest in the first place. So it, it can lead to more recidivism, the civil rights groups say. And then there are libertarian groups like the Cato Institute that are, you know, say that this is just basically a dramatic governmental overreach that makes it easy for the government to take whatever they want from you. And then, uh, Last year, civil forfeiture actually attracted the attention of Supreme Court Justice Clarence Thomas. It was a case called Leonard versus Texas, which was about a woman trying to recover about $200,000 in cash that police took from her son's car when he was pulled over. And the Supreme Court declined the petition for cert, but Justice Thomas wrote a dissent, and he basically criticized the civil forfeiture process as something that police departments frequently abuse at the expense of people who, who can least afford it. Okay, so we're at the Supreme Court now. Uh, we Obviously, this time around, they, they decided to take on the issue. Um, it's a case involving a guy named Tyson Timms and his Land Rover. Could you sort of walk us through the background here and, and how he took his case to the Supreme Court? Sure. 
Tims was living in Indiana when he was arrested and charged with selling a few hundred dollars worth of heroin. He pled guilty and was sentenced to home detention and probation. And then the state separately filed a civil forfeiture action against the car he was driving when he was arrested. It's a Land Rover that he bought with money from his father's life insurance policy. Uh, Tim's fought the civil forfeiture and ultimately lost at the Indiana Supreme Court. So that's what brings us to the big court. So, Diana, what is what in a nutshell, what is his argument for why, you know, for why the, the state of Indiana shouldn't have done what it did? What is his what are his, what are the broad strokes of his argument before the justices? Sure. Tim's is arguing that the Eighth Amendment in the, in the Constitution should apply to state civil forfeitures under the 14th Amendment's due process clause. So basically, the right to be free from excessive fees and fines, or in this case, civil forfeitures, is a fundamental one that's dictated by the Constitution. And he's arguing that civil forfeiture is a form of punishment. So it has to be treated like the Eighth Amendment's protections against you know cruel and unusual punishment yeah. or excessive bail. Both of those have already been incorporated against the states. Well, on the face of that, Diana, that sounds pretty logical and following along with what Tim's thinks should be the right reading of the Constitution and how the law applies here. But how is the state spinning it? They obviously don't agree. What's their argument? Indiana doesn't see these as a punishment at all. They, they're they're basically saying that uh, a civil forfeiture action is filed against the property itself, and it's a separate thing entirely from the punishment of the person. And the Eighth Amendment just doesn't apply to these types of civil actions. And, and they, they look way back in history, basically saying that you know civil forfeiture has been something that's been in use for decades, far longer than that. They can be harsh. But there, the idea that the that local law enforcement can pursue property that was used in a crime or paid for with proceeds from a crime is is something that has been supported by many courts. Diana, you're not in the room with us right now, but as you were laying out the state's case there, we all kind of scrunched our faces a little <laughs> bit. Uh, it and, seems. And we're struggling to kind of follow their logic. And that sounds like... Um, was very typical of what the justices uh, had in as far as reaction goes at the arguments that were held today. And it was um, it was a pretty stark reaction. Tell us a little bit about that. Things definitely seem to go well for Tim's. Uh, you know, several of the justices said that it's basically a foregone conclusion that the right against excessive fines, as dictated by the Eighth Amendment, is incorporated against the states. And so Indiana Solicitor General Thomas Fisher, who was obviously arguing, arguing for the state, tried to argue that, you know, as I just said, that the Eighth Amendment doesn't apply to these in rem forfeitures, these, these civil proceedings against property. But Justice Gorsuch reminded him that the Indiana Supreme Court, when addressing Tim's case, didn't try to make that distinction. They just said that the right wasn't incorporated. And one particularly colorful moment, Justice Breyer asked Fisher if there was a kind of in rem forfeiture that could be too big or, or too, you know, too unfair. What if a state forced anyone who was driving a Bugatti over the speed limit? 
even just five miles an hour, Justice Breyer said, to forfeit it. Would that be constitutional? And Fisher said, yes, it would be. Wow. What if you're swimming in your pool of gold coins and you happen to smoke a joint in the pool? What what then occurs? Quite quite the pull from Breyer. Just like, you know, he, he could have said any car. He said right. Bugatti. Yeah, very yeah. specific. I think you'd go Ferrari yeah. or Lamborghini. Right, it's a... That, that does make sense, though. And, and, and you began the segment by saying this. Like, there's a lot... To like, no matter what kind of wing of the court you're on here, the liberal justices can come at it from uh, a criminal uh, criminal justice reform type of thing. And of course, on the right side of the court, you know, there it's a libertarian, you know, you know, government action on my property issue. So it makes sense that they came down that way, or that they look to come down that way. Right. So Diana, it feels like Tim's may prevail here from from what you've told us about how arguments went. Right at the beginning, you were telling us how. Um, there's been a trend of civil forfeiture growing and growing. If Tim's wins, will that slow down the trend of that? Potentially. You know, it's obviously hard to predict what will happen, but I think what what you should expect to see is just more litigation uh, fighting back against civil forfeitures. So uh, if he wins, people will be able to say, you know, this civil forfeiture action against my car or against this cash or whatever, violates my Eighth Amendment protection against excessive fines. Diana, thanks for explaining this one. Can't wait to see how it turns out. Thanks so much for having me on. show with something offbeat and guys this story uh shivers down my spine to even sort of talk about it but let's touch down on the bar exam the bar exam yes yep. so are they still are they still requiring people to take that thing they sure are okay. but few people are passing especially in california that's what i want to talk about okay today. well what's going on out there well only 40.7 percent of the people that took the california bar this summer passed it okay. that's a low that they haven't seen since 1951 when only 37 and change percent 51 passed. was a good year, though. That's true. Right. Good year for lawyers. Good year for the bar that? exam. Yep. Uh, Guys, that's I mean, such a low passage look, rate, though. There's, there's lots of stuff to do in California. You know, they say you can go to the mountains, you can go to the beach, but one can't, thing you should probably do... But the, yeah, well, the one thing you should do more is maybe study more for the bar exam. <laughs> Although well, I don't want to students blame those, here. There were those commercials a couple years ago for Coors Light where they had bars on their uh, on their, on their their. Uh, bottle that to tell you like, whether or not it was cold. It was cold, and they'd be like, "I'm taking the bar exam." <laughs> great. Uh, well, maybe people could actually pass that one. I mean, yep. just for some perspective. <laughs> yeah, I, mean, if, I mean, if they're blue, then it passes. No, yeah. Sorry, go ahead. Yeah, so what's going on? For some perspective here, um, I took a bar exam once upon a time. Mine was in Virginia. Yeah. And I thought to myself, like, oh, I feel like it was hard when I took it too. How hard is it compared to how what's going on in California? Right. So I looked at my year. Um, and the year I took it, the passage rate was 68% in Virginia. That was pretty low for that state. Mm-hmm. Last year's Virginia bar passage rate was 73.4%. Okay. And but, and again, we're dealing with 40.7% yeah, for California. Yeah, let's emphasize here. that. That's crazy. But to be yeah. clear... Uh, is, the, is this a situation where maybe the test has just gotten harder or like it? So it's unclear. I mean, it's it's very clear that that's a shockingly low passage rate. Yeah. Um, other states are also seeing dips, though. Okay. So um, 
Texas dropped seven percentage points between July of 2017 and July of this mm-hmm. year. New York fell five percentage points. So there okay. is sort of a drop a, a, across the board, it seems like. Maybe this a, is just like canary in the coal mine that we're all getting dumber. Well, yeah, well there's well, also... Possible. Or that the test, it's like you said, it could be that the tests are harder or are not addressing what students are learning in law school right now. Hmm. So the State Bar of California... Um, the executive director of that group said that they're also troubled by this and they want to better understand the reasons behind it. So they're launching a study to review what knowledge and skills get tested compared to what people actually need hmm. when they go out into the workforce. I'm I'm Decisive pre- action. Yeah. <laughs> I'm prepping my own uh, WSJ uh, opinion piece about how millennials killed the California bar exam. Because uh, That'll go over really well. There's like a millennial take that's like in the ether here that's waiting to be written. I well, think. it also just sort of ruins all the comments I used to make about like, yeah, I took the bar in a really hard year. <laughs> I feel like I really succeeded by passing that Virginia bar. Look at bar. this. It's getting merciless. Yeah. yeah Maybe exactly. they've just tightened the uh, restrictions on Adderall in California. Definitely possible. (laughs) That'll wrap up today's show. Thanks for being with me, Bill. See you again next week, guys. And Alex. Thanks. We also want to thank our producers, Kelly Marcano, Stephen Trader, and Danielle Smith. Our guest this week was Diana Novak-Jones and contributing reporters Bonnie Esslinger, Abraco, and Michael McInerney. Music for the show comes from Silent Partner and Little Glass Men. If you want to know more about anything we've talked about, check out our website. We're at law360.com slash podcast. We'd also love for you to follow us on Stitcher or iTunes and leave us a review. Thanks and join us again next week. <laughs>